So it's wonderful to be back on the pulpit again uh, this week. I was away last week, but it was also wonderful last week uh, to be able to tune in uh, to the service and listen to the gospel being preached uh, by Kevin Wattell. I hope you were able to listen to that service. It was a beautiful service and a beautiful sermon on the, two, the tale of the two debtors. And as a pastor, it brings me great joy to see our students um, study at the seminary and then ascend to this pulpit. It's only one step, but ascend this pulpit and, and boldly proclaim the gospel. We have Tim, who's leaving us shortly with his wife and children to go out west. to be gospel preachers there. Anson and, and Rachel and their children are in, in Australia still, and Kevin is doing uh, his internship. It's a beautiful thing to witness all of this. And it's our prayer, just off the top here, it's our prayer that Mercy Church will produce an army of young men who desire to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, both near and afar. I can tell you, and I think my colleagues in this room can tell you, that it's an awesome, awesome privilege to be able to do that. So hold that in your prayers. Well, we're going to go back to the theme, though, that we started many weeks ago now, characteristics of a thriving church. And, and today we're going to look at this theme devoted to the downward way of the homeless Savior. Devoted to the downward way of the homeless Savior. And I just need to, you know, maybe help us reflect a little bit on two weeks ago, I, I was speaking about the downward Savior uh, because that characterizes his life. And we get that from Philippians, we get that from his incarnation, but we get that from Philippians chapter 2, the New Testament epistle, that Paul talks about Philippians 2 verses 6, he says, who, this is Jesus being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but here it comes, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and, and he became a man. In fact, he became a slave for men. This was the downward way of our humble, humble Savior. His whole life was characterized by that downward mobility, that downward direction for our salvation. That also means that everything about Jesus resisted the opposite. The worldly relevance, the fame, the power, the ease that, that we sometimes pursue to make life a little bit easier for us. So Jesus says to us, in Matthew 10, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Well, today we're going to explore that kind of downward mobility of Christ, that downward way of Christ, as we connect it to the homeless Savior. Jesus, we understand, was not only a servant, you could say he was also a homeless servant. I know some scholars argue that Jesus may have had a home in Capernaum, but we have no real evidence of that actually being the case, certainly no deed with his name on it. His disciples obviously did have homes in Capernaum, and we have times where he visited those homes. But our Savior, you understand, as he ministered among us, was functionally homeless. And I think that should be a jarring reality for us this morning. If it's not, it should be. Our Savior, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and every square inch of land on planet Earth, who owns the galaxies because through him all of them were made, 
for the sake of our salvation, became the homeless Messiah. That should strike us, I hope. But it should also strike or force the question, how does this inform our view of home? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, to follow a homeless Savior? I realize that some of you do not own your own home. We have renters here. And others of you have a home and maybe have more than one home. And some of you might even have a cottage and some of you, I think, are renovating their homes. Because I think there's more than one of you. So I realize that as we talk about home today and what, it, what does it mean to follow a homeless Savior as we connect it back to our own homes, that we're actually talking about something quite sensitive. I'm aware of that. There's a lot of sentimentality, there's a lot of emotion attached to our homes, and I appreciate that emotion. And yet I think Christ by His Spirit has a word for us this morning, whether we are homeowners or apartment renters. And it is a word that is in the context of the missional call of Christ to make His gospel go out far and wide and to bring many, ultimately, to His eternal home. We're going to get back to that. It's not your home that needs to be the focus this morning and even in your life. Your home cannot and should not be the focus of a follower of Jesus. No, but the eternal home with Christ should be. So when we talk about following a homeless Savior, we're, we're talking about a Savior who is actually now at home and one day will welcome us into his home where we will be for all eternity. So connected to all of that, we're going to read a few passages from the Bible now. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to begin with reading uh, from Psalm 49. This is a pretty, pretty intense psalm. Uh, the psalmist is exposing the hearts of those who do not love God, who have rejected God, and have put their pursuit, have put their heart into their homes, into their possessions, into all that they own. And... The sons of Korah who wrote this have a word for them by God's Spirit. We're going to pick it up at verse 5. There we read, Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? This was probably written about a thousand years before Jesus came. Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever, en ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined uh, to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay, decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. So do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase. 
for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them. People will never bring again, never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. Well, that's the Old Testament passage that we're going to read in connection to our message. And it's a thematic message, so I'm going to speak more thematically about following the homeless Savior than really exegeting these texts carefully. But we're going to reference them still in the thought sermon. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus has a word for someone or two people who want to follow him. And it's a pretty direct word, you could say. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. 18. This is what we read there. He says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. This is our homeless savior. Another disciple said to him, Lord, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, told him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask the Lord for a blessing over his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's powerful unto salvation. Sometimes it strikes a chord in our hearts. Sometimes it digs deeply. Sometimes it exposes idols. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you do what you need to do in our hearts this morning. For your sake, help me to get out of the way that your word can be proclaimed clearly and boldly and it can resonate in our hearts and where conviction and change needs to happen, where encouragement and joy needs to be engendered. We pray all that will happen in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to follow this theme this morning, devoted uh, to the downward way of the homeless Savior and this is, the, this is the, f- the first point that I'd like to reach out to you with, is that our Savior has a vision for our homes. Our Savior has a vision for our homes. And the first vision that he has for our homes, and there's four that I'm just going to quickly go through when it comes to our Savior's vision for our homes. The first vision that he has for our home is that we need to see our home as temporary blessings. As temporary blessings. They are blessings, our homes. Of course, because they provide shelter and warmth, a place to rest, to be refreshed and enjoy rich fellowship, a place to grow, a place to be nurtured in the faith of sharing the love of Christ, of seeking to be hospitable with others. These are great blessings that God has given us, whether we own a home or in an apartment. Those are the blessings. But I don't know if you caught it in Psalm 49. But the only home in Psalm 49 that has a sense of permanence is the grave. It's a sobering reality. Verse 11 says that their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations. And then the only other reference to a home in Psalm 49 
is in verse 16 where it says, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. You will not see a hearse with a U-Haul vehicle, I mean a U-Haul trailer being pulled behind it with all your goods or pulling your house. It's just not going to happen. You know, the, the, the sons of Korah who wrote the song could be writing to the Western world today. If you go to any cemetery and look at the dates on the gravestones, many, many of the dates, especially in Europe, but even in Canada now, will prove this to be true. If we take our friend Frederick here, he died in 1997. Sorry, he was born in 1797 and died in 1888. He lived for a, a full life of 91 years. That means he's been in the grave for 134 years, soon to double the time that he lived on earth. My family and I recently walked by a home on our street. It was cold and it was dark. The neighbors we were walking with informed us that the wife had died three years ago and suddenly, a few months ago, the husband had fallen ill and also died. They had no children, and their home sits empty. There's no real estate sign in front of it yet. They had lived there possibly for 50 years. And it struck me how many memories would have been forged in those 50 years in this home. How many laughs and cries and moments of intimacy and maybe some strife. But the years will go by, and they'll wash away those memories as new buyers take this home because loved ones, the home is temporary. Not only then do we need to realize that Christ's vision for our church is to realize that our home is a blessing, but it's temporary, but also that we actually have a loose hold on it then, that we don't grasp it too strongly as his church. Now, as you read through, through Holy Scripture, we get the sense that the Lord wanted to provide his people with homes. And so when he takes his people out of Egypt, some of you know the story, he takes his people out of Egypt because they were in bondage, and, and, and he brings them through, the, through, Canaan, through the wilderness and brings them into Canaan, and he promises them homes. This is what we read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you to, into the land, sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Here it comes. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig and vineyard and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Be careful that your home doesn't become an idol. Paradoxically, one way for God to help his people to not forget him and to have a loose hold on their homes was for them, well not maybe even paradoxically, just real, realistically, for them to have a loose hold on their homes is for them to three times a year leave their homes. 
So three times a year, God had called his people to Jerusalem to where the temple was or where the tabernacle was, and, and, and they were to worship God three times a year. And one of those feasts, and the three feasts, and one of those feasts was called the Feast of Booths, where they were actually made to make tents. And for a week, you live in a tent so that they would remember that there's no permanency in their homes. They are gifts, yes. Have a loose hold on them. Job had to realize this. Job 1 verse 21 says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He lost everything. That's the second thing that Trikes wants us to remember, that we need to have a, a loose hold. That's a temporary blessing. We need to have a loose hold on our homes. But here's the third. We need to realize that it has a potential hold on us. Our homes have a potential hold on us. And we just need to call that out. Our homes can, be, uh, can kind of have a strangled grip on our life, lives. And I think this is where Jesus is gro- going with the scribe and even with the, with, the, with the disciple who come to him. You see, both of the scribe and the disciple who come to Jesus and say, we want to follow you. Jesus is exposing whether they are able to follow him by asking them, really, are you willing to let go of your home for me? Jesus knows it's not that easy to follow him. He doesn't paint a rosy picture. Jesus is not a salesman for exotic trips in rural Israel, like these pictures. This would be a nice place to go to. You know, those are nice places in Israel. Jesus saw this, maybe not all the... Whatever, something like he wouldn't have seen, but this is Israel. He wasn't selling exotic trips. Come follow me, we'll get to experience the outback. Jesus says, I'm homeless. Are you prepared to address possibly the single biggest idol in your heart? Your home? That's what he's asking the scribe. You understand that? Are you prepared to leave that for me? Similar, the disciple who wanted the same, are you prepared to leave your family for me? Let goods and kindred go. We will sing after the service. It's the same. Some of you know the story of the rich man who says, Jesus, I want to follow you. And, and Jesus says, okay, you want to follow me? Sell all that you have and come follow me. And, and, and he walked away sad. Probably because he had way too much real estate. You see, the home can have a strangled grip on our lives. Jesus is not asking his church to become homeless. He's not even asking the church to take a vow of poverty, as some have done. But maybe it's an okay thing to do, like Mother Teresa did. He's asking us to question whether our homes have such a power and influence over us that we're not able to let them go. That's what he's asking. That brings us to the final quick vision on on what Christ has for our home, and it's this. They were never to see the home as an end in itself. We're not to see our homes or our apartments as ends in themselves. Christ knows that when we forget that the temporal nature of our homes exists, and we forget the eternity of the kingdom of heaven that is eternal, of course, we have this problem that we begin to believe that we have arrived when we get a certain type of home or living arrangement. In the Western world, is particularly bad at this. 
but maybe it's all over the world. It's what we call the arrival mentality. I'm not talking about Pearson. Nobody wants to go through Pearson today. We're talking about the arrival mentality of acquiring something and believing that by this acquisition, you have arrived. We think if only I had a larger home with two-bay garage with a pool and a hot tub and a lakeside view, I have arrived. I will be happy. Until then... And then we drool over someone's new kitchen and we point out the mansions on Lakeshore as if people have arrived and, and, and we haven't. It's a tenacious lie that Jesus wants to crush. Jesus says to his disciples in Mark 13, verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Do you see the Toronto landscape, skyscape here? It's there, the, the Toronto picture. There we go. Like I, found, I worked so hard to find that photo. Like We've seen it all before, Pastor Wilbur. Yeah, I know. Not one of those bricks will stand on the day of days. There's a lot about homes. There's not actually a lot about homes in the New Testament except how they serve the community of believers. The home was never a mean, it was never an end. The home in the New Testament, for the New Testament church, remember this, is always a means to the end. A house, the houses in the New Testament were launching pads. And when they got in the way, as we will learn, God's people were displaced so the gospel could continue to go out. It was all about the progress of the gospel. That's Christ's vision for the home. What's Christ's vision for the heart? For your heart and my heart. Jesus says clearly in Matthew 6 verse 20, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Arthur put it like this, she says, how tragic it would be to cross, cross the finish line. Now we're talking about the finish line into eternal life. How sad it would be, how tragic it would be to cross the finish line with a perfect home and a lifetime of aimless running. So that at the end of the day, you're disqualified from the prize. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 9, he says, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you know that it's a race, that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Listen, the prize is not a perfect home on this side of eternity. It's never the prize. The prize is a perfect home on the other side of the great divide. This means then, as followers of Jesus, the radical call of the gospel may include this reality that we actually don't have a fixed address. <coughs> Disciple Peter, he knew this. He became the apostle. He writes to the church in the dispersed, dispersed, dispersed in Asia Minor, and he says, you are strangers and foreigners in this land, and that's okay. Your address may not be fixed, but that's not Christ's ultimate concern for you. No, his ultimate concern for you, loved ones, is your heart is fixed. That's his concern. The focus of Jesus' ministry on earth as the homeless Savior was all about the hearts of his disciples, and it's all about your hearts 2,000 years later. It's all about your hearts. 
Not the status you drive from your home or from the car you drive. No, the status of your heart that he gives you as a follower of him. I want to remind you just a little bit again this morning who it is that cares for your heart and what he did to secure its eternal home. Of course, you know his name. His name is Jesus. We find him on the pages of Scripture, born, as we learned two weeks ago, to a displaced family. They were in Bethlehem. They should have been in Galilee. And then they became a refugee family because they went to Egypt to, 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 to protect them from, from Herod. They had no fixed address at the beginning. And then his ministry started, and his ministry, he also had no fixed address. He was the homeless Messiah, and then he died. That's the story. But he did not die in the comfort of a bed at his home. He, he did not die with nurses tending to his needs or a doctor giving him help. No, our Savior died a barbaric death naked and with curious spectators mocking him. You know, who is more homeless than a person nailed to a cross, stripped in unbearable agony, abandoned by his friends, with no earthly possessions, no bank account, no home to count for, and then a father who turned his face away. This is our homeless Savior. And the death of our homeless Savior was for the sole purpose of redeeming your soul. You know, we learn through the death as the righteous and holy payment for our sins that through his death, what he did then was pry open the door again to our eternal home, which was barred to us after the fall into sin. That's what he did. Now the garden city awaits his people. Now the cherubim will welcome us and not ban us from eternal paradise. He redeemed our hearts so that we can enjoy the security and the comfort and the joy of our eternal home with him. That's what he did on the cross. And now the Savior says to his church, he says, this message of the gift of eternal home, of an eternal home, the security, the sense of belonging that that brings, the sense of fellowship, the sense of joy that all is entangled and wrapped up in this eternal home that I have promised you, needs to be shared to a homeless society, to a broken society, to a desperate society, to a lost society. Redeemed must tell the world Go tell the world by the spirit that fills your heart. Go tell the world to repent and believe in the Savior that has opened heaven's door to their eternal home for them if only they believe. That's what we need to tell the world. We need to tell the world that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and that there in that home there's going to be many rooms. John 14 verse 1. We need to tell the world again that where their treasure is, there their hearts will be also. So why not make your treasure heaven? Because that's where you're going to end up. Go tell the world that Jesus has come to give you life and life in abundance. But that life is ultimately going to be experienced on the other side. Though we get to taste the experience already now. Go tell the world that Paul says, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, that I'd rather be away from this body that is full of decay and be at home 
with the Lord. Go tell the world that. Go tell the world that this earthly tent we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, this earthly tent will be destroyed, but we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, that won't be destroyed. Tell the world that. And go tell the world that we have a message for them. It doesn't matter where they live and what kind of home they live. A large percentage of the world have no homes that they can account for. No deed written on that, that this is their property. We are an anomaly here in the West. But you go. You go to this world. You go into their cities. You go into their communities. You go into their neighborhoods. You go overseas in my name, and you tell them of their eternal home with Christ, their Savior. But expect to find resistance. I know, because I know the own, my own patterns of my own heart, that it resists this call. And much of the resistance that comes to the call from the, from, from the call of the gospel, or to follow the call of the gospel, is connected to the way we view our home and our family. I remember well the first day of my missiology, which is a course in mission class in year three at seminary. Some of us have had that course already. Some of us are going to enjoy that course. Very tragically, our regular professor, who has since passed away, Dr. Jack DeYoung, was on permanent leave because he had an Alzheimer's diagnosis. It was a very sad time in our university, our master's program. So two other pastors had to sub in for Dr. DeYoung. And one of them, some of you know, is Pastor Henry Versteeg. And I remember what he said. I think it was on the first day of class when he stepped into the classroom. And it stuck with me. So I'll share it with you now. He said that the passion and interest in foreign mission, and even local mission, he argues, continues to wane in the West compared to the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century because of the growing affluence we are experiencing here in the West. He went on, he says, the disparity between the lives and the homes we live in today and the lives in the homes of the people that we may be called to serve has only grown over the last number of years. And with this growing disparity between the homes that we live in today and the homes where we may need to go with the gospel, because it's so great, we find it too hard to transcend that distance and to live among those who live in poverty for Jesus. It's too hard to give up our comforts. It's too hard to give up our lifestyle. And so the cause of mission from the evangelical church, which includes the Reformed churches of Canada, is at a low ebb in the 21st century because of the affluence. I agree. But at the end of the day, it's a heart issue. A heart issue. Allow me to be a bit personal here. When we were called to Papua New Guinea, which is rated by the Department of Foreign Affairs of Canada as one of the most dangerous places in the world to live, we were also called simultaneously to Langley, British Columbia. I don't think it's one of the most dangerous places in the world to live, though we do have some people from Langley that could verify that. Life insurance for a healthy 25-year-old wife of mine <laughs> 
and a 30-year-old man, which was me at that time, and my son, when we went to Langley, was easy. We had no pre-existing conditions, so it was all clear. We tried to get life insurance to go to Papua New Guinea, and they laughed at us. But God spoke to us. And what we had to give up from the West, His grace would supply in the East. That's what He spoke to us. He spoke to us through His words in 2 Corinthians 9, 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient. My power is made known through weakness. You go in my grace. But we had to wrest from our hearts that security, that comfort, that ease, which is so many ways the sum total of our Christian life here in the West. I'm sorry, but it is. And we had to ask the difficult question, did we trust the Lord who gave his life for us to give our lives back to him, come what may? Did we trust that even if we did not know where we would live, that the threats to our safety could be great, that he would provide and be there in the midst of that? Did, we, did he mean more to us than all our family and all our friends and our home that, and all that that could offer back here in Canada? Was he worth more than all that? We had to wrestle with these questions. And should we face malaria and dengue and rats and snakes and holdups and infections? Was he worth more than that? I thank the Lord for the opportunity and the courage he gave us to go. And I would wish it on anyone. Because when you are called to be displaced, listen to me, when you are called to be displaced for Jesus, he defines your worth. You're more vulnerable, you're more dependent, you're more heaven-focused, you're not sure if tomorrow is going to be guaranteed, you're more pliable for his service. And you're more empathetic to those who are in need. This is the call of the gospel. You know, sometimes we begin to believe the lie then that such a call is only for a particular few, and we call them missionaries. We're not all Pauls. I've heard that too many times in my life. We're not all missionaries, Wildeboer. The scribe wasn't a missionary either. And neither was the disciple. These were ordinary men in the proper sense of the word, but they wanted to follow an extraordinary savior. But were they prepared to follow an extraordinary savior when the extraordinary savior might call them to homelessness? That they have to sacrifice something of this world so that they gain a better hold on the next. Were they prepared? And it looks like they weren't. Take Acts chapter 8 when God, so this is not just the disciples who were sent out, the church was also sent out. In Acts chapter 8 we read these words, on that day a great persecution broke out, this is in Jerusalem, against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. And then in verse 4 we read, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The Greek is euangelion, it evangelized wherever they went. This proves to the church once for all, loved ones, listen to me, that we're all on mission. Can we say that word all together? One, two, three. All. I want to hear it. One, two, three. 
all, thank you, you are all on mission. Not just the pastor who needs to be prepared to move for Jesus wherever he sends him and their family. His people, one and all, need to prepare to count the costs for Jesus. And I want to remind you this morning as we go into our last point and just briefly that it's not really about your house. It's not really about your house is. It's not really about your car. It's not really about your savings plans or your retirement package or your cottage. At the end of the day, the matter is, where is your heart? And what place does Jesus hold there? But let me just close quickly with this. I know time is running. Let me close quickly with this. Our Savior's vision for you, for you, for you, for all of us. I think it can be summarized. Our Savior's vision for you can be summarized in three questions that you need to answer this morning. I'm speaking mostly to those who are entering the housing market, but maybe the rental market as well. Here's the first one. Are we entering the housing or rental market with much prayer? Or are we transitioning within this market with much prayer? You know, typically we leave house purchases and even renovations, not to throw those people under the bus who are doing rentals right now, and I'm not saying you did this, but typically we leave housing, housing purchases and renovations to our own whim. If the house needs to be improved or whatever, you just say, okay, it needs improvement. And, and we haven't really doused it in prayer. We haven't saturated. Maybe you have, but many times we don't. We don't saturate the housing of purchases and housing renovations in prayer. And what happens then is that we, don't be, we, we, we forget to realize that how our house is a means to an end. And we begin to think that the house is an end in itself when we don't douse it in prayer. It doesn't mean it's easy. When we prayed to move into East Hamilton here, we had nine or eight setbacks. No, they didn't accept our offer. They didn't accept our offer. We had to learn patience when you step out in faith for the Lord. That's okay. But put your housing renovations and put your housing purchases and whatever you're doing in prayer. Get on your knees before you move. Secondly, here's another question. Are we believing a lie that we can't imagine moving from our home. I'm not saying that you have to move. But are you believing the lie that you can't move? That you can't imagine downsizing? That you can't imagine going overseas to advance God's kingdom? Or moving across the city for Jesus' sake? If you can't imagine that, even in conceptually in your mind, can we imagine as a family moving for Christ's sake there or as an individual moving there for Christ's sake? If you can't imagine that, it may be that your house has become an idol to you. Third, are we thankful for the blessing of our home and our apartment? Or is our heart con constantly discontented Always wanting more, never satisfied, never good enough, funneling, funneling, funneling all our extra cash into its improvement. That may be the opposite of leveraging your home for Christ's kingdom. What does this mean for us? It means just a few things. Know that our homes and our apartments are gifts from the Lord. What do we have that we have not received, Paul asks. 
if you have them or with that it it's a gift know that our homes are meant to be a place where we can find tranquility security and acceptance know that Know that our homes can be beautiful and that a larger home does not mean a materialist. Joseph of Arimathea probably had a nice house. I don't think he was a materialist. Know that these desires and securities, though, can quickly become disordered if we're not careful. Sometimes, listen, sometimes the walls of security and layers of comfort that we cushion our lives with can become so thick that we cannot hear the small whispers of the Holy Spirit that maybe we need to sell or maybe that we need to move for His sake. We just can't hear it. There's too much padding. That maybe our home has become an idol and it's reducing the fire of our passion for His eternal kingdom and for the glory of the advancement of the gospel globally. Maybe. Maybe this morning, you just need to be reminded, loved ones. I say this with all love, and I know my own struggle with this because I struggle with it constantly as well. But we just need to be reminded that Jesus is worthy, and Jesus is worth it, whatever the it might be in your personal life. We have all that we need in our precious Savior and a million times besides that you cannot fathom. He is enough. And he says to you and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or field for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will eter inherit eternal life. Do you believe that? And all God's people say, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus is enough. That sometimes he calls us into hard places. But he says he'll never leave us. And ultimately, he's all that we need. We don't need bigger homes. We don't need fancier cars. We don't need more real estate. We desperately need more of Christ. Lord, inflame our hearts with a passion for the gospel and inflame our hearts with a passion to share that gospel so that we can, by that, usher in the coming kingdom so that the number of the elect may be full. And our eternal home with you will be secure forevermore. Fill our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.